How do you go from Cahersafine, County Kerry, to working for CNN investigating Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election? Well, there's only really one person on the planet who can answer that question, and he's on the show today. Donny O'Sullivan is an Irish journalist and writer making waves in America right now for his tremendous coverage of US politics, and in particular, misinformation in this, the most bizarre and significant election maybe ever. Hello and welcome, wherever you are in the world, to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. What you're about to hear is an extract from my conversation with Doni. To hear the full conversation and our weekly US podcast, An Irishman in America with Marion McKeown, become a member and for as little as a fiver a month you will gain access to hundreds of episodes, bonus series, live events, three full weekly episodes, and you'll also be able to walk around knowing you are supporting the creation of this show. I really can't do it without you. So go to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad today and do that. Yesterday, we released a special bonus episode on all platforms to mark World Mental Health Day, featuring Sir Bob Geldof, Blind Boy, Richie Sadlier and more. Look, the fact is young people in Ireland need your support to get them through these coming months. Continued uncertainty is contributing to a growing sense of hopelessness and fear among young people. And on this World Mental Health Day weekend, I just ask you to please, please make a donation to Jigsaw so that they can support young people when they need it most. The place to go is jigsaw.ie forward slash donate. A tiny reminder as well that every Tuesday we have our running podcast with Sonia O'Sullivan, an Irishman running abroad. And you don't want to miss that. Whatever running level you're at, it is the perfect partner for your run in the evening. If Sonia can make me into a runner, she can do the same for you. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme... What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Johnny Rigo! Tony O'Sullivan, it's brilliant to have you on Irishman Abroad, particularly at, you know, this historic moment. What What is your day to day like over there, given how anarchic and chaotic it all seems from this side of the water? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been it has been a, a pretty crazy time. My job here, Jared, is is mostly uh, looking at how the campaigns, how Trump and Biden are using social media and using Facebook to reach voters and 
and all the sort of misinformation and stuff that happens online as well. So part of that job would normally involve sort of traveling around the country and seeing how people are using Facebook and, and different things like that. Obviously, that all came to an abrupt stop in March here with COVID. But over the past few weeks, sort of been been back on the road. But, you know, as I'm sure you can see yourself every single day here, particularly over the past week or two with Trump's COVID diagnosis and the Supreme Court, every day is a circus here. Yeah, I mean... When we put this out, we're recording this on Tuesday, the 6th of October. It's uh, 1.37 here, Irish time. And he's just re-entered the White House and taken his mask off in what seemed like the most, however bad you thought the drive-by was, this grotesque kind of theatre that took place on the balcony that I didn't even know you were allowed to get on that balcony myself. I... I watched it through my fingers. When when did you stop being surprised by this man's behaviour? You know, I think there are certain... I mean, every day we're sort of, you know, if, if you're working in the news here, or if you're living here in the US, there's something every day, you know, where he says something or does something or uh, goes and blows up some norm and, you know, is, is chipping away at sort of the democratic institution. So every day there's something. But I do think there are like these standout moments that I think really resonate. I mean, you know, t- I was talking to my mom at home last night and, and she was talking about the about the, the drive by. And also, I think, you know, then last night, of course, him returning to the White House. I think there are certain standout moments that the whole world sort of says, oh, my God, wait, he really did that. And I think, you know, that happened, I think, a few months ago when he talked about people injecting bleach to help get rid of COVID. And I think it's the same this week with people, you know, because you can see it, you know, like the guy is he has COVID-19. He's shedding the virus. He's he's contagious. And he's making these poor Secret Service agents get into a vehicle with him. You know, it, it's it's deeply, uh, it's profoundly unfair to those people who whose job it is to risk is is to risk their life for the president. So they're not going to say no to anything, I guess. But you know, I I, I would imagine most of them go in there with the understanding that the president wouldn't uh, undue, you know, for for unduly. Uh, risk their lives for for no particular reason. But, you know, that's what we're seeing this week. I mean, like you say, your expertise and your area of uh, focus is misinformation and I guess conspiracy theory that is fueled by social media platforms. When did this start to become something that you were zeroing in on? It was really 2017. So, um, I was working with a company called Storyful in Dublin, which was set up by Mark Little, who used to be on RT in primetime. And Storyful was set up around sort of around 2010, I think, around the time of the Arab Spring. Uh, But with the idea of um, verifying videos and images that were showing up on social media, because what was happening was a lot of newsrooms were, you know, relying on social media footage for the first time. And they were getting it wrong because somebody put up a video to YouTube, label it as happening today in one place, but actually it might be an old video. So I was working with Storyful to help newsrooms make sure that what they were putting on air from YouTube and Facebook was sort of correct. And I eventually moved to CNN to do that. And then after the 2016 election, the U.S. intelligence community sort of came out and warned in January 2017 that, you know, Russia had tried to 
mess around with the election. And as part of that, they had used social media. And that's sort of when my bosses at CNN came to me and said, you know, your your job is to figure out what's real and what's fake in breaking news in real time uh, on social media. Can you figure out this um, uh, Russian plot to undermine American democracy through social media? So I said, that sounds easy. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, that's, my, that's well let me stop you there for a second, Tony, because the first part of what you've described there, verifying whether a piece of footage from YouTube, where it's from, when it took place. I mean, for CNN to entrust you with that responsibility tells me that you must have been brilliant at doing just that, that thing of verifying things. How, first of all, were you doing that? And how did you uh, give us an example of one where it was being carried as one thing and it was something else? Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds a lot more uh, impressive and um, difficult than it actually is. But it's really simple in terms of, uh, you know, you treat any piece of information, uh, let's say it's a video uh, on the Internet, as if it's, you know, somebody handed you a tape in person. And it's doing the sort of really simple things that I think a lot of people, you know, who are online a bit would do in, in their day to day lives anyway. So, you know, let's say if, if a bomb were to go off in a, in a part of part of the world you look at the video a video that's circulating on social media of it and you just try to start match things up so if it's on a street corner in london um you try and you could use google maps or google street view to figure out if, if that is indeed the street you could look at the weather reports to see you know if if this should the sun be in the sky is it a rainy day in london um and then you look into the person who posted it does it make sense that that person who posted the video would be there uh if you know 10 minutes before that they posted a video uh of themselves sort of drinking a pina colada on a beach in barbados then you might say okay hang on this person might have taken it from elsewhere and then our job was oftentimes to to track down that person chat to them ask them for permission to use their video sometimes pay them and also uh, bring them on air because as well as you know having this footage they're um, an eyewitness yeah i mean that does sound pretty straightforward, but I'd imagine it's it's not as straightforward. And I'd, I'm sure that there are people that challenge you on whether you're right or not. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes it is difficult because, you know, obviously, if something extraordinary, you know, if 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 God forbid part of O'Connell Street in Dublin had blown up or something, uh, you know, that's not something that happens every day. Uh, so that's sort of something that would be easier to vet and verify. But, what you know, I sort of remember what my colleagues at Storyful used to be doing was when, you know, at the, at the real tick of the Syrian war, when there would be bombs going off in the same location, you know, multiple times a day or multiple times a week. Some of my colleagues at, at Storyful in Dublin, who are far more talented than I am, you know, were actually had had such a had such an understanding of what Aleppo and Syria looked like that they could tell if a video was from today or from two weeks ago by saying, no, uh, that video isn't from today because that mosque or that minaret in the background isn't there anymore. It was blown up a few weeks ago. So there are sort of varying degrees uh, of, of how difficult it could be. But it's it's extremely I mean, it's it's there's it's exhilarating in terms of like in your when you're in a breaking news scenario, especially at somewhere like CNN, which is relies so much on visuals to one, find the videos, but two, to get it right, to make sure, you know, that what you're putting on air is actually what it shows. And 
I've been very fortunate that I've made <laughs> no no massive mess up in that regard. But it, it is about it's about being cautious. It's also about saying, you know, to be able to, you know, you might have pressure from a control room or from produ- TV producers to be able to say no, to say no. You know, I'm I'm not 100 percent certain that this video is what it says it is. And until we are, you know, I'm not putting my neck out there to to, to say that it, it is if I, if I don't think it is. Well, before we get to the Russian interference and your work with CNN, you were, of course, raised in Karzavine in Kerry. You were a standout at the, uh, according to what I've read, you were a standout at the Young Scientist exhibition. you <laughs> 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 Research, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you went on to study history, politics and international relations at UCD and moved on then to get your master's in political science from Queen's University. Now, I know the Kerryman newspaper uh, somewhere uh, that carried all of this information. <laughs> you, you, did you provide that information or how did, how did they verify their sources? That is, it's gas that you asked that because, um, <laughs> so when that showed up in the, yeah, the Kerry man, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, kindly of them wrote up, <laughs> wrote up a piece on me and, um, it, it showed up in the newspaper and I guess it was probably a year or two ago and my mom texted me uh, a photo of it in the paper and she said, oh, you never told me you talked to the Kerry man. And I said, I didn't. <laughs> then I said, did you talk to them? And my mom or dad hadn't. And it, it, it was a typical sort of, um, I guess, like what, what people do in Kerry uh, was like the guy who wrote it, I think, was able to wrote, write a lot of it just from knowing what's going on in the town. Uh, and I think, he took, I think he took a bit from CNN. I think they also just grabbed. Oh, actually, how it happened was um, uh, th- there's friends of mine who came who came visit and they run uh, a seafood bar and restaurant in 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 Carcevine, just outside of Carcevine, called the point and they had come to visit cnn a few years back and they had taken a photo you know of us on one of the cnn sets or something and they stuck it up behind the bar and i think the guy who actually wrote the piece came into the bar one night and said what's that <laughs> <laughs> and then he actually took that photo and used it in the newspaper unbelievable, so unbelievable. but like um you know the, the thing is obviously with cnn um, you know, CNN as a as a, a lot of folks working, like a lot of publicists, a lot of communications people who work with, you know, the anchors and stuff who are the big stars. And very occasionally they'll have to come to me, uh, the publicist, normally if I tweet something stupid just to give out to me. But they got a Google alert or something on this and they said, Donny, you know, you're going to have to tell us if you're going talking to media. Uh, thing and I had to try to explain to him. I said, but I didn't. I didn't talk to them. They said, how did they know? And I was like, you just you don't understand how Kerry works. You don't understand how Kerry works. A fella sees a picture behind the bar, and one thing leads to another. Uh, in yeah. it, it did say though that you know you'd done this year at the Northern Irish Assembly as a as a researcher for the Enterprise Trade and Investment Committee. <laughs> Now, that is in June of 2013, the G8 summit was being held in Fermanagh at the time, which was huge. Were you there for the summit itself? And as um, my researcher, John Marr, said, it wouldn't be the first time that the Northern Irish Assembly had turned someone off a career in politics. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, I had actually, I think I was also writing my master's at that time. So I, I was up and around there. But it, the, the big sort of um, thing that we were there for that year 
was it was the year that they decided to take down the flag over Belfast City Hall, the whatever the British flag, and that led to a year of just protests and you know half the city being locked down. And I would commute every day from South Belfast to East Belfast um, by bus from sort of Queens to, to Stormont, which is about an hour on the bus every day. Uh, but, you know, half the a lot of evenings that the roads were just totally closed because people were were protesting uh, about the flag coming down. It was a surreal year, to be honest with you, to be up there. Also to have my Kerry accent, which might have been thicker then than it is now. But I remember, you know, you'd be talking to some of the politicians up there. And of course, a lot of the shinners would be delighted to hear a Kerry accent. But I, I remember talking to one like DUP guy uh, one day and he, he didn't like he didn't like the sort of look of me, I think, and, and the sound of me. And uh, he said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Carsevine in County Kerry. And he just looked me up and down. He said, I you're a very long way from home. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, if, I have a few questions there, right? And I guess it does go back to the CNN thing that obviously this all goes on the CV, the storyful. You know, I'm sure the Young Scientist of the Year Award uh, <laughs> goes in there as well. To get the job is hard. Like it's they're not throwing these jobs around. You, you leave storyful. You're there about three years. Uh, according to what I know, you left after R- Rupert Murdoch bought it. I don't know if the two things are related, but how did the job at CNN come about? I'm, I'm expecting you to tell me how many times I've been pulled over by the guards. <laughs> yeah, that's later. That's later. <laughs> <laughs> without, you know, without without uh, coming off as, as falsely modest, you know, there's a lot of sort of right place, right time in a lot of this because uh, I got brought into Storyville just as, a, as an intern and sort of it, re- it. I got actually brought in as an intern right around the time that Murdoch bought it. OK, um, so it was sort of it was very interesting to see that dynamic and sort of, you know, work through the company for a few years to see what it was like a big U.S. corporation, news corporation at that taking over sort of this small Irish startup. And then I, I moved to to the U.S. with Storyful. My mom is actually from Boston and moved to Kerry, so immigrated the wrong way. Um, so I have an American passport and things like that. And I moved here with Storyful. And, you know, it was just one of those things. I was very lucky in that what Storyful was doing and, you know, a credit to, to Mark Little was sort of at the time and still is, but at the time very much so cutting edge stuff, you know, like mm. newsrooms were saying, you know, we need this sort of social media is becoming such a thing now and breaking news. We need these in-house teams. So, you know, when I got out here, uh, CNN and others were, were calling and, you know, as they would have been calling all my colleagues, too. So I got I got lucky going in there on the in the background of stuff and um, then sort of got a bit more lucky when when, you know, sort of, I guess this, that story evolved uh, to, to becoming a sort of more investigative uh, role and then eventually sort of making my way on, onto the telly. But uh, it, it's been just a lot of it. Uh, I mean, I would sort of really owe it all to, to the, the Irish startup Storyful. That's, you know, that's where I trained to sort of all to do all this stuff. And and, you know, we're sort of they were the best in class to learn from. So, well, let's get into uh, it then. Let's get into this Russia thing, because, as you say, that's the beginning uh, of life in CNN for you essentially that meeting where it comes down the line look here's here's what's going on 
here's what we think might be happening. Was that the first you had heard of this or were you aware? Was there murmurings around the place that there is a suspicion that this is what's going down? Yeah, there was a little bit of talk and it had been in the news a little bit. And, you know, I guess I hadn't been but I hadn't been sort of clued in enough to say, oh, I should start looking into this. This sort of aligns with what my skill set might be. But it was a it was the one of the executive producer of the investigative unit, Patricia DiCarlo, um, sort of walked over to I was on the social media team and she walked over one day and she asked one of the bosses who was sitting next to me just saying, you know, is there some way we can figure out uh, how many sort of Facebook views a piece of false news got, like specific articles? And um, I sort of piped up and said, well, you could use this and this. And um, she just sort of took me under her wing then. And, um, you know, for all of 2017, we were digging in to say, okay, what were the Russians doing on social media? And the sort of operating hypothesis at the time, because all, all the CIA and FBI and intelligence agencies said was they were doing something on social media and they were supporting Trump. So we were spending a lot of our time looking for pro-Trump pages, you know, sort of pro-Trump Facebook pages, websites, and to try to figure out if they were Russian. Um, and we were doing it for many months uh, without a lot of luck. And then one evening I came across a page called Blacktivist. And it was a Black Lives Matter page. It had about, I think, three or four hundred thousand followers. So pretty big. It had been active for a few years and it had been posting like a lot of the stuff you would expect to see on a Black Lives Matter page. You know, videos of police violence against African-Americans, things like that. Also, but some of the language in it was like particularly incendiary and was sort of like a bit more extreme than you might expect. And that page came on my radar just because there had been some activity around it that looked a little bit suspicious. But I, when I first saw it, I said, that's that's I said, that's that doesn't fit what we're looking for. We're looking for these sort of pro Trump pages. But a few days passed by and I eventually mentioned it to a person who has sources at Facebook. And this was like when there was a lot of pressure on Facebook from Congress, from investigators to take action, to look into what Russia was doing. And my colleague called Facebook and he came back into the room and he said, you're right. That Black Lives Matter thing is a Russian thing. What? And what was what? What were you like in that moment? I mean, that must have been a jackpot moment. Yeah, it was. I mean, two things happened, I guess. One was that, right, this like the, the effort that is happening, you know, from from Russia against the US is far more broad and more insidious and more widespread in American society than just some simple, uh, you know, approach Facebook pages. Yeah. yeah. And the second thing was, and, you know, I was actually in, in Washington, in our office in Washington at the time. This was before I was doing telly or anything like that. So I was like, I, my, it was my colleague Dylan Byers. I said, Dylan, I was like, this is, this is a huge deal. And it was, I think it was a Friday. And then that's when, like, sort of the whole mechanics of CNN went into overdrive when it when it was like, OK, it is 3 p.m. now. We want this story to be on Anderson Cooper at 8 p.m. tonight. So we have to go through with a fine to comb line by line by line. Everything. What did this page post? What were they doing? And, you know, we as, as we researched all that and, and dug more into it, they were really trying to, like, rile people up. And they were also actually organizing real events in the U.S. and sending money 
to unwitting, unsuspecting Americans who thought that they were just a real activist group to sort of do their work on the ground. So it was, you know, that that sort of uh, that that evening prompted, you know, sort of 20 more stories and a year more worth of reporting uh, from me uh, looking at all this stuff. But basically what we what we now know is that the Russians were running pages, pro Black Lives Matter pages, pro police pages, pro LGBT pages, anti LGBT pages, pro Muslim, anti Muslim, every sort of divisive issue in American life. They were running these pages, somewhat huge followers, to really rile people up. Now, you, you know, I think some people say, ah, oh, it's only a few Facebook pages. It's only a few Facebook ads. I would say two things to that. One is clearly they view this as something valuable enough that they're investing, you know, not an inconsiderate, not an not an unsubstantial amount of resources to doing it. And two, this is like from a playbook that has existed long before social media, right? This is from a sort of Soviet playbook where, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show The Americans, but in terms of embedding, you know, there's been a long history, whether it's during the the Cold War, of embedding agents into uh, American activist groups, whether it's the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and also trying to get, you know, fake news articles published in different parts of the world, whether it's trying to blame the United States for the AIDS uh, virus back in the 70s and 80s. So this is a playbook that, that's been used for a long time, but now it's been adjusted for, for social media. So when you say running the pages, you know, again, there'll be other people that will, there'll be people listening to this who still have their eyebrows raised. You're like, how, how are they, how are they running the pages? Like, is it just a matter of them funding those that are already in charge of the pages or is it that there's actual Russians in charge of the pages and the content? I mean, because this has been investigated so thoroughly and because, you know, the US government have used their spying technology in terms of breaking into email accounts and different things, we actually know that the, in, in 2016 and 2017, it was a specific group of Russians in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, we even know the building they're at. CNN went to visit them, um, bef- uh, but they, I think they had left at that point. And it was a huge operation. And we actually know true, you know, if you read the indictments from special counsel Robert Mueller, you know, we have a real insight into the workings of this operation. And basically what it was, was I, 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 there was a few dozen people, maybe more than 100 people working for it full time going into work every day as if really they were working at like a marketing agency or something, but they were going into their office in St. Petersburg and writing up this sort of incendiary material. And there's specific instructions that the U S government were able to get again, through breaking into these accounts that like, you know, they'd be given their marching orders. The trolls would say, uh, you know, you're running this page today. It's the conservative page. Uh, so you have to rile them up this way, uh, sort of share stories from right wing sites, don't share stories from CNN websites. So this was a, a you know, a very uh, complex and sophisticated operation. And we know now it, it's still actually happening at the moment. Um, there's a lot more eyes on it. Uh, Facebook's trying to, you know, tamp down on it, but they are still trying even, you know, th- there's been takedowns of pages in, in recent weeks. But I guess like I, and the name of this group. The name of this Russian troll group is called the Internet Research Agency, which is, is, stand, which is IRA. 
Um, and I remember um, back in again back in 2017 when we were really intensely covering this group and trying to figure them out. I was I think I was flying back to New York, and I was on a phone call with my boss in Washington, and I was in uh, Reagan Airport in in Washington. At, uh, at the airport on sort of my phone and sort of repeatedly saying IRA, IRA, IRA in a phone uh, in, in an airport. And I checked myself and I said, do you know what? <laughs> uh, me and the Irish accent is saying IRA over and over again into a phone probably isn't the wisest thing to be doing in an American airport. <laughs> I mean, Donny, it's, it, it's a crazy place to find yourself in and to find yourself in the position of covering this, uncovering this, and then seeing that there's actually no way to stop it. There doesn't seem to be like this just is going to be what goes on. Does it not leave you feeling a little like, well, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes if I do a story or, um, or you know, speak, speak to, you know, a class or something uh, in, in the US, like sometimes I'll be asked by an editor or somebody to say, and can you let us know, like, what are the solutions? Can you leave us on an upbeat point? And I'm a pretty upbeat person. But when it comes to this actual issue, like, I mean, I don't have solutions for, you know, uh, this very complex issue of, of sort of foreign interference in American life. You know, it's, I guess a part of it, one of it, you know, part of it is um, the consequences of having uh, free and open society, right? You know, that, that people can come and go and mess around. But there is like a responsibility on the part of the social media platforms. You know, they could do a whole lot more, which they are now doing, to be fair to them. Like, I mean, the fact it's sort of disgraceful that for years these pages were running. So there you have it. There's a little taste of that conversation with Donny. I tell you, it gets it gets a lot. We go into a lot more detail in the second half of this. You don't want to miss that. Uh, head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. His uh, discussion of how he sees this election playing out is worth the Fiverr monthly membership. No obligation whatsoever. Cancel anytime you like. Gain access to all of our content over there at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Road. Come on over, hear the rest of the episode. Thanks to Brian Connolly for his production, John Marr for his extra research, Tina and Mikey for making the show possible and to you guys for tuning in. Hopefully you can hear the rest of this later on.